This is the official Saster podcast with me, Harry Stebbings. As you all know by now, you can find me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs. And the main man behind all things Saster can be found on Twitter at JasonLK. But I have to be honest, I'd love to see more than just social media interaction with you. And it'd be fantastic if you join Jason and I at Saster Annual 2018. With a guest lineup including the likes of Aaron Levy at Box, Mike Cannon-Brooks at Atlassian, and Michael Pryor at Trello. Just to name a few of the incredible guests. It's an event not to be missed. And if you use the promo code Drink, with Harry, those three words, drinks with Harry, when you purchase your tickets, you'll not only get 10% off the ticket price, but also an invite to an exclusive mojito only event with me. What more could you want from a SaaS event? <laughs> However, to the show today, and we have had many operators on the show recently, so we're jumping to the other side of the table now into the world of SaaS investing. And I'm thrilled to welcome Greg Sands, founder and managing partner at Costa Noa Ventures, one of the leading early stage enterprise funds on the West Coast with their latest $175 million fund raised early earlier this year. At Costa Noa, Greg has made investments in the likes of Intact, acquired by Sage for $800 million, Quizlet, Demandbase, and previous guest Grovo, just to name a few. Prior to founding Costa Noa, Greg was a managing director at Sutter Hill, where he was an early investor in the likes of Feedburner, All Business, and Return Path. And before Sutter Hill, Greg was on the other side of the table as the first hire at Netscape after its founding engineering team. As Netscape's first product manager, Greg wrote the initial business plan, coined the name Netscape, and created the sweet spot business unit, which he grew from zero to $150 million in revenue. I do also want to say a huge thank you to Bradfeld for the intro to Greg, quite a long time ago now, but without which this would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, you must check out Datadog. Datadog takes care of the complex task of managing metrics on the back end. Instead of figuring out how and where to store your data, you get to focus on actually using the data to make better decisions. With turnkey integrations, Datadog seamlessly aggregates metrics and events across the full DevOps stack, from automation tools to source control and bug tracking to databases and common server components. And that's why thousands of enterprises love and trust Datadog, from eBay to Samsung to HP. And you can find out more at datadoghq.com. That really is a must. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Agree.com, the business that allows for individuals and small businesses to create and send fully editable online contracts in minutes. Among the reasons users on this platform stay on this platform, drop dead simplicity, integrated payments processing, and real-time notifications when clients have viewed, signed, and made payments on contracts. And you can learn more at Agree.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Agree.com did, visit WePay.com forward slash Sasta. If you haven't checked out their cheat sheet, it really is incredible on how to get started with platform payments. Get it at WePay.com forward slash Sasta. However, that's quite enough from me, and so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Greg Sands, founder and managing partner at Costa Noa Ventures. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Greg, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show for a second time. Uh, what can I say? I so enjoyed the first time that I had to have you back. So thank you so much for joining me again, Greg. It is great to be here. Well, I'd love to kick off today, though, with a little bit about you. Incredible recent fundraise, so a massive congratulations first on that. Always good to have it in the rearview mirror. <laughs> but for those that maybe didn't catch the first episode, let's start with how you made your way into the world of early stage SaaS and investing in those game-changing SaaS companies. You know, one of the things that we learn over and over again is that these SaaS companies are like freight trains. So they sometimes take more time and more capital to get going. But when they get going, they can build really extraordinary businesses. And I think Intact, which is an exit we had in the last couple of months, sold the Sage, now Sage Intact for $850 million is a great example of that. It took 
10 years since the time that Brian Jacobs from Emergence, Bob Spinner from Jackson Square, and I recapitalized the company. But the team built an absolutely extraordinary company, and the sale was for $850 million. Now, I want to start today. You know me. I love contrarian thoughts. And you told me before about the rule of thoughty and presented some interesting theses on it. So let's start with that. And starting first with what is the hallowed rule of thoughty? Explain it for anyone that maybe doesn't have that foundational knowledge. Yes. So the rule of 40 says that to be a good company, the company's growth rate and its EBITDA margin percentage should add up to 40. And as you know, I'm about to say, I believe it is completely wrong. Can I ask first though, why do you think it has achieved the hallowed status? Is it simplicity's sake of being an easy benchmark and metric to measure against? Why do you think it has achieved the status it has? You're right. It's very simple and it's very easy to apply and it really is built for more mature companies. It's actually a little bit more of a private equity formula than a venture capital formula. But as a result, a bunch of venture capitalists have heard about it and are now running around telling companies that they have to comply with the rule of 40. And it's actually confusing people and in many cases leading to bad decisions and destroying value. So if we then take the contrarian thought process here, and from a meta perspective, why do you disagree with regards to, to both its effectiveness and its implementation of the rule? First of all, let me extract the foundational principle that I think is correct, which is that both profitability and growth are important and that the addition of the two is a reasonable proxy for good things happening in a business. And it does correlate with about 30 or 35%. It does explain 30 or 35% of the market cap of public companies. So that's the part that actually makes sense and the part that works. So why are the reasons that it doesn't work? One, almost nobody conforms to exactly 40. So it isn't a rule of 40. It's more is better. Second, it is very hard to achieve the rule of 40 for SaaS companies under $100 million. In fact, if you look at the charts that the investment bankers or others put together, including in my blog post on the subject recently, the companies that are above rule of 40 are mainly Salesforce.com, Workday, ServiceNow. They're companies that are many times over a billion dollars in revenue. They have huge franchises. They have ecosystems and platform effects. They have installed bases that they're selling into. And that's just not the life of any 20 or 50 or $70 million SaaS company. Okay. So with that in mind, then, how should startups be thinking about this? They're taught about the the hallowed rule. What should they be focusing on then metric-wise if it's not the rule of 40 that everyone says? Well, I think the problem with it is that it's actually more complicated. And you have to understand the fundamental unit economics of your business. And I think in a SaaS company, that means understanding the customer acquisition cost, being really clear about the average selling price and the gross margin associated with it, and therefore the lifetime value of a customer. But then you also have to understand churn rate to know the lifetime value of a customer. You have to understand net renewal rate. So once you acquire a customer, do they tend to grow with you over time? And you have to do that analysis for each segment of your business. So if you have a mid-market segment and an enterprise segment, you really have to do that analysis separately in order to understand what's working. Because the thing that people are trying to decide with the rule of 40 is how much to invest in growth. Am I better off investing this 
incremental capital in growth or should I steer it to the bottom line? And the way that I look at it, you have to understand the unit economics of a particular segment or channel of your business to say, is it working? And if it's working, then you can afford to step on the gas. Then you can afford to engage in explosive growth. But the rule of 40 doesn't actually tell you how much to invest in growth for a specific product or a specific channel. Do you have a story of a particular case where you've seen one of the unit economics really playing out and really being scalable? And then to what extent that company invested in growth? And and how can founders think about to what extent specifically? Well, let me use the example of Intact. It was an $850 million exit. The multiple of trail and 12-month revenue was over 10, so a very valuable franchise. And I would say it never conformed to the rule of 40. So it was growing just under 40% and was converging towards profitability, but wasn't actually profitable. And so I think the key thing there was that the unit economics in the direct business were pretty darn good. But the company had for years aspired to build a business with value-added resellers. The SaaS ecosystem doesn't really have very many value-added resellers. We were able to convert some of those traditional on-premise accounting partners into channel, and the unit economics of the channel were actually better. So we grew direct sales teams slowly and started, iterated, and then grew the channel business very quickly. And by the time of sale, the channel business was half of new customer acquisition every quarter, up from nothing. And so that's a great application of going down into the unit economics by channel or by segment in order to decide where to invest. What's your thoughts on the importance of focus and kind of finding that segment and doubling down on it? And what does that mean for the alternative ones? I think for most SaaS businesses, the benefit of focus is very real and very important. Too many companies say, we do these three things and we do them all pretty well. And it's hard for me to turn down customers who are coming. I think for most SaaS businesses, it's the case that saying one of those segments is most important. One of those segments is getting the new features. We're focused on whole product solution for that group and laser-like selling and marketing whether that's using an account-based marketing strategy, for example, or an outbound selling strategy to go to those folks who you're most explicitly addressing. So a company like Stitch Labs is engaged deeply in exactly that right now. They picked one and they're going for it. I think the alternative view, which I think is important to acknowledge, is that there are platform companies where the objective is to make the platform a little bit better and to raise the tide for all users and the like. But one, you have to be sure you're a platform platform. Two, you have to have the time and the capital to do it. Before we move on to kind of the scaling of the team, I do want to finish on one element. We, we mentioned profitability earlier and its importance in the stack. I'd love to hear your thoughts on where profitability does lie in the importance. And Tom Tungus actually said on the show before that growth is the largest determinant of value at IPO, not profitability. What are your thoughts on this and kind of how it subsequently affects the importance of profitability? So he's absolutely right. Growth matters more than profitability. Both are important, but growth compounds and EBITDA doesn't. (laughs) 
right? EBITDA just ends up as cash on the balance sheet and growth compounds year over year as long as you're capable of doing it. I think actually, rather than growth rate plus EBITDA margin, the right formula is probably something like 2x growth plus EBITDA margin would be the right leveler for that. And I'll also point out that it changes depending upon the tenor of the market, both in public and private markets. So in a bull market, the investment bankers come and they say growth rate is the single largest determinant of price. And in a market which is a little bit more balanced, they come and they show a chart that looks exactly the same and they say growth rate plus EBITDA margin explains price. So it isn't a fixed principle. It's variable. Therefore, there can't be a rule and it can't be any specific number. But we mentioned that kind of the scaling the organization and, and scaling specific channels. I'd love to touch on scaling the core element of people. So if we talk about this, you said before that the first hire in every function should be a Swiss army knife hire and most people go wrong, but you left me on a cliffhanger there. So let's start with the question that I always love to ask on the show. When's the right time to hire the first VP of sales? What would your response be to aligning that to the Swiss army knife profile? So I think that the first sales hire should be individual contributor or two, not a VP. And I think that the Swiss army knife of sales is business development. That means somebody who can explore their way through sales cycle, try new things, still iterate the presentation and positioning, do deals that are still a little more custom because you're figuring your way out. And that to me is the way that you move a company from founder-led selling up the sales learning curve to the point where you're ready for a VP of sales. I find that when we're in an investment with what I call the bulge bracket venture firms who aren't as focused on zero to 10 million in ARR, they just in a very flip way say, hire a recruiter, hire a VP of sales, so you'll get it all done. And I think it's 180 degrees wrong advice. So if we talk about that, you said when they're ready to hire that VP of sales, when from your experience kind of scaling these companies, is a company ready to make that hire and move from the, the biz dev Swiss army knife to the maybe more specialized experience VP of sales? I think when you have done enough experiments that you have a good sense of what your sales process looks like. And that in some companies takes three months and in some companies takes 12 plus months. But I'd say hire a pod of two individual contributors that are going to work closely with founder, experiment with different ways of pulling together that sales process. And by that, I mean, who is the customer segment? Who's the actual buyer? What is the price point? Are you trying to sell the whole thing up front or land and expand. And once you have a couple of data points on that and clarity that it is working and it's working semi-repeatedly and a couple of different people are capable of doing it, then you want a VP of sales who can help scale that up. But hiring the VP of sales is a little bit like deciding on your sales model because they usually come in with a playbook and a set of things that they've done before. So you don't want to make that decision prematurely because then you're committed to a sales model. And it'll be two years before you wake up and say, that wasn't the sales model. And we've wasted two years of our company's life. So if we transition them from the importance of kind of building out that sales team to the importance of building out a marketing team, where do you see most people going wrong in establishing the first marketing hires? So what founders say to me over and over again, hey, we've sold a few of these. I've got a couple of inside salespeople who are also selling. All I need now is a demand gen person. I need a demand gen person to fill the pipeline and feed the salespeople. 
people. And I think companies should actually do the opposite. In the early stages, all marketing is product marketing. It's the product marketing side that helps you narrow in on ideal customer profile, on who exactly you should be selling to, on which messages are most important, on the case studies and the referenceability of your existing customers. And that is the material. That's basically sales enablement and helps point them in the right direction. It's also the case that that's all the raw material for content marketing. So saying we're going to do demand gen with no content marketing doesn't work in today's world. And only product marketing knows the product well enough to be able to generate the kind of content necessary around which you can do other paid demand generation. I've spoken to many founders recently who believe in the importance of engineering-led sales and marketing teams. How do you feel about this and kind of the rise of almost a new segment internally within companies of engineering-led sales and marketing? So I actually don't have a particularly strong point of view on it. I haven't seen it work terribly successfully, but I think both sales and marketing are highly quantitative. And 20 years ago, they weren't. And that is certainly important. It's also the case that there are a set of companies where people talk about basically growth marketing, even in the SaaS ecosystem, not just in, in consumer. And therefore, that question of what's the first experience, what's the onboarding, how do you wow somebody in the first minute is fundamentally about product. It's deeply integrated with that. And so I think it is the case that that requires an engineering orientation and capability. But over time, if you want to scale, you need to take the things that engineering more generally, but also founders in particular, know about the product. They know about the needs of customers and actually package that up and translate that to dozens of other people in the organization who are more conventional sales and marketing people. And so for me, when you go back to sales learning curve, that's the key, which is a founder comes in and she or he knows the product, actually built it, knows the DNA, knows the customer base, has the CEO calling card, usually has a degree of personal charisma, can make up new product features, can sell at the whiteboard, but that isn't a scalable model. So the big question is how do you transition over time to a sales organization that sells on PDF, that's locked down, that sells the features that you have, that sells customers that you can serve with high customer satisfaction. And that, to me, over time, you want to move to a model where you've got much more limited flexibility rather than more. No, I, I do agree on kind of reducing that flexibility. But I would love to move into one of my favorite elements of the interview being the quick fire round. So Greg, 60 seconds faster. Are you ready? I'm ready. Management upgrade is the most important thing a CEO can do. Agree or disagree? Agree. Having the right people on the bus is the single biggest job of the CEO. Usage-based pricing. What are your thoughts? I think usage-based pricing is critically important. Pricing is the easiest way to create or destroy value. And the competing objectives are perfect price discrimination and simplicity. How do you think about disincentivizing users with usage-based pricing in terms of the more you use, the more you pay, people then use it subsequently less compared to a per seat model where maybe that usage isn't almost disincentivized? User-based pricing also has the challenge that people share accounts and individual users don't onboard. So I think you actually end up having the challenge either direction. The right pricing model is frankly different for every product, but you also want to build something that so simplifies somebody's life that it's not a hard economic decision to say, I'm going to save myself an hour. I'm going to be better at my job. It's better for the company if I spend this money and just barrel through. Logos are expanding 
expansion. What are your thoughts? New logos create more enterprise value. Expansion is the cheapest and most efficient way to grow. So generally speaking, I think growth companies should focus on new logos. But for example, companies that are just trying to turn over to profitability, trying to avoid that next financing round, focus on customer success and expansion is one of the most efficient ways to do that. How to balance between order and chaos? What's the big advice? The creative tension is incredibly powerful. And whichever side you err on, you have to know that and have people in the organization who compliment you. Talk to me, Greg. You're a very wise man now. Uh, multiple funds with Costa many years at Sutter Hill. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? I think first and foremost, my judgment on people is really refined and people are unequivocally the most important part of the investment process. How is that changed? Second, so in the end, the people haven't changed. I've changed. And some of that is the combination of personal experience, staying married, raising kids. And some of that is the result of making a broad set of venture investments, seeing companies fail and succeed, seeing people fail and succeed, and trying to coach and mentor people through that. And in the end, I've come away with the view that drive, tenacity, and a willingness to be attached to reality, to understand the facts as they are, are the most important things in what I look for. It's the opposite of the reality distortion field. I actually want someone with complete situational awareness who can think their way through the problem. Moving on to the quick fire, though, as all founders know, so many VCs today focus on another element, not a rule of 40, but product market fit. So before we move to the VCs themselves, I do want to quickly discuss this. And how do you define the different phases of product market fit? Let's just set the landscape there. So I think phase one of product market fit is founders have sold the product to somebody. And I think there are many founders who walk in our door and say, hey, we've achieved product market fit. We have our first customer. And that, you know, I think of that as, you know, that's kind of base camp. The second level is we've sold it multiple times and somebody other than the CEO has sold it successfully. And again, people walk in and they say, hey, we've got, we just added a new sales rep three months ago. He or she has sold the first version. We have product market fit. And that's kind of level two. The third is what where I think Jeffrey Moore actually meant it, which is we consistently and repeatedly can sell it to a group of customers that we can define, we can find, and are basically a self-referential community. That to me is sort of the core definition. You might call that phase three of product market fit. And then the fourth, the way Mark Andreessen defined it, which is your hair's on fire and you can't keep up with demand. And very few companies have that experience, but man, it's great when you get it. But where do you then, you said before that to me that they're most commonly misinterpreted. So where are they most commonly misinterpreted, do you think, in that multi-phase approach? I think phase two is where they're most commonly misinterpreted, meaning I've sold a handful as founder. We've hired our first salesperson or two. We have a couple more customers. And as a result, it's time to step on the gas. And there just isn't enough data yet to say we should hammer on the gas. So I always use the expression crawl, walk, run, right? You want to prepare yourself for explosive motion. And that means you add a couple more sales reps. Then you hire a VP. Then you make sure you're doing the unit economics correctly. And you make sure that you're selling to the consistent profile and that everybody's selling in a consistent way, meaning the same presentation, the same value. And then you can say, you know, we can really step on the gas. I'll give you a great example. I know a VP of sales who was successfully selling into enterprise and the board and CEO came up with the idea that inside sales would be highly productive. It would be a good adjacent strategy. And it 
it was a board from big firms with a desire to swing for the fences. They convinced the CEO and VP of sales that they had to go from, this was a mid-stage company, from zero to 50 inside sales reps in six months. You know, it turns out it didn't actually work. Would have been better hiring a pod of three or four, seeing how it works, right? What, what happens? VP of sales loses his job. I mean, that's the way that it goes. And so ultimately, this idea that adding a new segment or adding a new channel or adding a different price point, you got to crawl, walk, run and prepare yourself for explosive motion. Otherwise, things blow up. And speaking of explosive motion, that's when uh, all VCs start to gather around. So I want to talk quickly about this and what should founders require and look for in their VC? We've said that VCs look for product market fit and the rule of 40. Flipping it on its head, what should founders require and look for in their VC? And what does that kind of picking consideration phase look like to you? First, I think they should find somebody that they trust. It doesn't always require like, but it's someone that they trust because this is like basically bringing in a VP that you can never fire as long as the company exists, which is kind of an amazing thing. The second is that they should look for, they should want their company and the investment to actually fit into the model of the venture capitalist and the venture firm. Meaning if it's a firm wired to write $20 million checks, they don't care about a $3 million check. And if it's a $50 million check, they're overstretched. And so you actually need to go understand the firm's strategy a little bit. I think they should look for alignment of objectives. And therefore, as you work together in partnership, being on the same page. And those would be my top three. So what I think founders most often do is they value price and brand and then someone they like. They will often ask about value add. Look, I think we have tremendous value add both in the craft of venture capital and the partnership and in the operating team that we've built. But honestly, it, it, it still is way less important than a trusted relationship and a partnership with a founder. I do want to touch on one element you said there about fitting with the VC model. Uh, we've definitely seen over the last few years, multi-stage funds really dipping into the earlier stages and, and then looking to double down to maintain that ownership. How do you advise counsel founders in that respect? And then also just think about from your perspective, the big multi-stage funds dipping into the early rounds and how founders should respond to that. It goes back to understanding the firm's strategy and what specifically they are trying to do. It's a little hard to lump everybody together. I think, you know, interestingly, I'd say a bunch of the bulge bracket firms are retreating from seed activity because they realized that it was a waste of time and energy in a billion dollar fund that they weren't paying attention to the companies and therefore it didn't give them an advantage in the deal because they didn't even know that the follow on rounds were coming up. And so actually I think it's, there's generally been a retreat. I do think you want to know that they care. So I had an example recently where a bulge bracket firm was writing a million dollar check and there's one other seed firm involved who is stretching to write a million dollar check. And the comment was literally, oh, we'll have, you know, our receptionist grab it out of petty cash. You know, the question is, oh, how much attention are they going to pay? Do they really care? Is it fundamentally important to them? And it may be that your agreed objective is that they can kind of hang around the hoop and maybe they're the ones to lead the series A, but you need to know that you're doing that. You need to know that it doesn't on their own warrant a slot on their dance card and you need to be aware of signaling effect. So I don't say as a blanket statement, don't take seed checks from bigger firms. I do say they shouldn't be the core of your round, that you should have somebody leading and orchestrating the round who cares deeply about your company at that stage and at that check size. Well, Greg, I know that's you with Costanoa, uh, and it's been so fantastic uh, to have you on the show for a second time. Again,
again a huge congrats on the latest raise and i'm so excited to see the next few years for you and for costa so thank you so much for joining me today it's always a pleasure i look forward to doing it again and a huge hand to Greg, as always, such a fantastic guest to have on the show. And if you'd like to find out more from Greg, you can find him on Twitter at GSANDS, S-A-N-D-S. That really is a must. Likewise, so is Jason LK, some of the most educational and entertaining tweets always from Jason. You can also see behind the scenes from Sasta and the 20 Minute VC from me on Snapchat at HDebbings with two Bs. It'd be fantastic to see you there. Likewise, we'd love to see you at Sasta Annual 2018. Do not forget the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, those three words, DRINKSWITHHARRY, to join the list of incredible incredible speakers like Michael Pryor at Trello, Mike Cannon, Brooks at Atlassian, and Aaron Levy at Box. It really will be a special event, and we look very forward to seeing you there. However, before we leave you today, you must check out Datadog. Datadog takes care of the complex task of managing metrics on the back end. Instead of figuring out how and where to store your data, you get to focus on actually using the data to make better decisions. With turnkey integrations, Datadog seamlessly aggregates metrics and events across the full DevOps stack, from automation tools to source control and bug tracking to databases and common server components. And that's why thousands of enterprises love and trust Datadog, from eBay to Samsung to HP. And you can find out more at datadoghq.com. That really is a must. And again, thanks to my friends at WePay. Do not forget to check out another very cool player in SaaS, Agree.com. The business that allows for individuals and small businesses to create and send fully editable online contracts in minutes. Among the reasons users stay on the platform for so long is drop-dead simplicity, integrated payments processing and real-time notifications when clients have viewed, signed and made payments on contracts. And you can learn more at agree.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like agree.com did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta. Wepay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with integrated payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash sasta. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you next week's episode with Intercom co-founder Des Trainer. It's a special one.